Well, this week uh, in Liverpool uh, has brought news that uh, many uh, hoped would never come. Uh, there have been grown men brought to their knees in tears. Many house, homes and houses panicking, looking to the future, asking what's going to come next. Uh, their supreme leader, their chief uh, commander, uh, the king and their general, uh, Jürgen Klopp, has said that he's leaving at the end of, of the um, the season. They've been living the dream for eight or nine years, and uh, now the dream is over. And to be fair, I'm not a red myself, but he's a great manager. He's been a great leader. He's led uh, the team well. He's been a great example of a, of a good leader as well. He's not been someone who's been marred by controversy or someone who's fallen from grace, but he is someone who's leaving. And he's leaving the Reds to find a new leader. A friend of mine sent me this tweet this week, week which really embodies some of the sentiment of many fans. It says this, uh, who is Klopp? To the blind, Klopp is the light. To the hungry, Klopp is bread. To the sick, Klopp is the cure. To the lonely, Klopp is company. To the sad, Klopp is joy. For the poor, Klopp is treasure. For me, Jürgen Norbert, great middle name, Klopp is everything. It sounds like someone we know, right? It's not Klopp. We're going to hear something of who that person is this afternoon. Hopefully, none of you are as infatuated as Sumrax, at Sumrax on uh, Twitter is there. Uh, but all of us do have that need and a, and a desire to follow someone and to follow someone who is a strong leader, to follow someone who can make a change, to follow someone who leads with integrity, to follow someone who has the power to make a real difference in the world and, and in our lives. And we all want and we all need people to follow, to, to help us into better things. We want people who can help us in our struggles. We want people that we can look to, who can, who can be people that we joyfully serve and joyfully follow in obedience. And the problem is, trying to find that type of leader is like trying to find the rainbow unicorn. Like it either doesn't exist, or we, we live the dream like Liverpool fans have been living for eight or nine years, and then suddenly the dream is over. That kind of leader just can't be found in this world. Either our leaders fall from grace, or they eventually leave us. Except for one. Mark's gospel, which we are taking our time working through over these next few years, we've seen so far that Mark, the gospel writer, is revealing the real Jesus to us. And in our passage today, which Julie's just read to us, we see why Jesus is a leader who will never fall from grace, a leader, a leader who is never going to leave us, and ultimately is a leader who we can bring our struggles to, a leader that we can trust with our struggles, and a leader who we can joyfully and lovingly and willingly submit to. And the key to following Jesus, the key to seeing him as that kind of leader, a leader that we would, that we would bring our struggles to and a leader that we would willingly serve, the key to seeing him as that kind of leader is found in a word that is repeated a few times and alluded to a few times in our passage. And it's this word, authority. Authority. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. Mark says, they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had 
authority and not as the scribes. So, so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus has been baptized by John. He's gathered in the disciples. They're following him. And now he's traveling across the area of Galilee. He lands in a town called Capernaum. Capernaum is going to be the setting over the next couple of weeks in the rest of, of the chapter here. And then as we step into chapter two. And Jesus, as he lands in Capernaum, he goes to the synagogue, the Jewish place of teaching. And Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching as he goes to the synagogue, but he does tell us how people responded. What does he say? He says that they were astonished at his teaching. He tells us how they responded and he tells us why they were astonished. In verse 22, it was because he taught them with authority. Authority. And then down in verse 27, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. And he says, the crowds, as they're looking on, they were all amazed. And they asked, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus comes and as he teaches, he teaches with a new authority. And as they look and they compare him to the other religious leaders, they see it as a new authority that is unlike the scribes, unlike the other religious leaders of the day. And how Jesus uses his authority shows us why he is a leader that we would want to bring our struggles to and why he is a leader that we would want to joyfully serve. And the first reason we see is this, that Jesus' authority is a better authority. The authority that Jesus has as we see him as a leader amongst lots of other leaders in our world, the the authority that Jesus has is a better authority. Elizabeth and I have spent, spent some time in India over the years. And on one of our trips, we visited a city called Haridwar in the north of India. And Haridwar is a bit of a, a capital for, for Hindu worship. There's lots of different temples in the city and you can go and visit them. And you can go on a tour around these different temples. And there was one time we, we went to this temple and as we were walking through, we came across a poor man, a beggar who was... It really emaciated, like it was hardly anything on him. And he was laying on the floor and he was screaming and writhing and wriggling and he was foaming at the mouth. And his eyes were locked in a trance and there was a Hindu priest who was throwing water on him and screaming at him and he was trying to perform an exorcism, trying to, to, to bring an evil spirit out of this poor man. And there were other priests who gathered around and they were kind of walking around him and chanting and, and singing and, and chaotically trying to pull this evil spirit or whatever it was that was tormenting this man, trying to drag it out of the sky. And honestly, it was terrifying to watch. Look again at, at verse 23 to 26. This man comes into the temple as Jesus is teaching. He's tormented by an evil spirit, much like our man in the Hindu temple. Except as he comes in, there's no chanting, there's no dancing around, there's no screaming, there's no splashing of water, there's no hysteria, there's no chaos. Jesus just speaks. And the unclean spirit leaves. Jesus just looks at the man and he says, be quiet. Get out. And the spirit leaves. See, folks, Jesus' authority brings order into chaos. That's what he does. The difference between Jesus and the Hindu priests is that Jesus is God. So his authority is infinitely better. 
infinitely better than those Hindu priests, infinitely better than any leader that we can come across in this world. Sean showed us last week in the last part of Mark's gospel that in Jesus' coming, he brings his kingdom. He brings the kingdom of God. As Jesus comes in human flesh and ministers amongst the people that he met here, the kingdom of God breaks in. And as the kingdom of God is breaking in, it is breaking into a world of chaos, a world of disorder, a world where we are used to being manipulated by people, a world where we are used to being deceived by people, a world where the rules for life are confused, like we we don't actually know what it is to to live and to live well in this life, where where, where those rules are disordered, where we are constantly being confronted with betrayal and lies. The kingdom of God is breaking into a world that is chaotic. And this kingdom that Jesus invites us into is so unlike that kingdom, so unlike that world. The kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurates is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where conflict ends, a kingdom where illness will ultimately ultimately be cured, a kingdom where strife will cease, a kingdom that is built on truth and valor and honor. And the fullness of that kingdom will be seen in the new creation when Jesus returns. But Jesus, as he comes, says, the kingdom is here now. Like we get to enjoy so much of that now. We don't have to wait for Jesus to bring order into our chaos on that day. That day it will be completed, but we can hope and actually live in a way where Jesus brings order into our chaos today. Right now. And chaos, folks, chaos is a good word to describe what's going on in many of our lives at the moment. Some of us feel chaotic. And it might not be that we're like that poor beggar in the Hindu temple. Like we're not thrashing around on the floor and foaming at the mouth and and people are screaming at us. But but mentally or circumstantially or physically or emotionally, we can still feel just as chaotic. We can feel like our lives in different ways are spinning out of control. Friends, see here that with a word, Jesus brings order into chaos. With a word. He does it with this man in the temple in Capernaum. He did it right back at the beginning in Genesis. Jesus spoke into the cosmos and brought order into chaos with a word. If he can do it with this man as he is possessed by this evil spirit, if he can do it with the whole of the cosmos, friends, he can do it with whatever is going on in your life at the moment. He can bring order into chaos. You can trust him with your struggles more than we can trust anyone else. Jesus speaks with authority, a better authority, an authority that brings peace into chaos. And so, brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you to listen to him. Listen to his words. As we step into this week, if you feel just that chaos building up in your lives, in whatever way, listen to his words. And where do we hear him speak? Here. In the scriptures. Turn to him. Listen to him. Pray to him and ask him to bring order. His is a better authority. And next we see his is a supreme authority. Mark makes the point in verse 23, doesn't he? uh, Telling us a little bit about this spirit that this man is tormented with. He says that the spirit was an unclean spirit. Now remember we've talked, haven't we, about how important words are for Mark. Like Mark 
is deliberate about the words that he uses. And there's something really important about using that word unclean here. Unclean is temple language. So the temple for, for the Jews of the day and those who would come into the faith there, the temple was seen as a holy place, a place where there was purity, a place where there was, where there was cleanliness. The temple for God's people was a place where good things were done, where noble things were done. And if there was something that was unclean, it was ceremonially defiled and it was not welcome in the temple. It shouldn't be there. The temple only housed clean things, things that were clean. And so when we read that the spirit was unclean, we should think and we should come to the conclusion that it wasn't welcome in this man. It shouldn't be in this man. Just like all of us, this man was created by God and he was created for good things, for noble things. Just like the temple. But this unclean spirit has moved in and taken up residence. And I just want to take a sidestep for a minute because this is the first of a few occasions where we'll see Mark introduce the theme of, of evil and demonic powers. And it's important for us just to address that for a minute because when the Bible talks about uh, unclean spirits, evil spirits, when it talks about demonic activity, it's not talking in metaphors and pictures. It's talking about a, a reality. A reality that in Western society we, we are encouraged to push aside. In Western society, in Western thinking, we're, we're trained to think that what reality is is what we can see and what we can touch. And the supernatural is just it's reserved for Disney and Netflix. Like they can make films and things about that. But, but the supernatural isn't something that's actually there. Like we just function in, in material things and what we can touch and what we can see. And that kind of goes down even to the root of good and evil. Good and evil, we're encouraged to think, are just social constructs. Like evil isn't something that actually, actually resides within people or is, or is an activity or a power. It is just something that is, that is uh, uh, brought about by our, by our thinking, by our perception. Western society doesn't entertain the presence of a spiritual evil in the world. People who do bad things, we are taught and we are trained, they do those things because of an, a chemical imbalance or because of environmental factors around them. That's helpful to know, folks, that is a relatively new way of thinking. Like literally only for probably the past 200 years have people thought in that ways. And it is mostly a Western way of thinking. Most of the rest of the world fully believe and fully understand that there is a supernatural reality to existence. Like if you were to talk to a survivor of genocide in Rwanda, or if you were to to have a conversation with someone who's on the front lines of the conflict in the Middle East at the moment. And they're experiencing the, just the reality of warfare and death and, and conflict. Or you were to talk to the parents of, of um, children who've been, been trafficked in East Asia. If you were to talk to them and say the atrocities that they've witnessed, well, they're just the, the natural outworking of human evolution. Or they're just the, the random firing of molecules in our brains that genocide, torture and rape are just humans being human. Like if you said that to them, that's a wholly unsatisfying conclusion to come to. It would be clear to them as they've witnessed what they have witnessed that there is something else at play in the world. That there are evil spiritual powers that even though we can't see them and touch them, 
They are as real as the breath that we breathe, which we all believe exists, right? And Jesus, in this passage, deals with those powers head on. Listen to what the Spirit says in verse 24. Speaking to Jesus, it says this. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then look how Jesus replies. Jesus speaks directly to the Spirit. It's a different conversation that he's having with the man. He speaks directly to the Spirit as if it actually exists because it does. And he says this in verse 25. Be silent and come out of him. He's talking to the Spirit. He's not talking to the man. Let me just say this, folks, if that is something that you are dealing with now or you know someone who is, if your past experience or someone that you know has dealt in in witchcraft, in the occult, in demonic practice, in new age spirituality, if you've engaged in any of that or you know someone who is, someone who's who's engaging and feeling just real spiritual oppression or even even hearing and and, and struggling with demonic voices, If that is you or you know someone who has, be encouraged, Jesus has full authority over evil. He is Lord over all. He is supreme over all. His authority sits over all other other authorities. And so everything, everything in creation must submit to Jesus. Everything in creation must bow the the knee to Jesus. And that includes evil powers. You just look at how they respond to him. They're terrified of him. They're worried. Because his authority is supreme over all things. And because it is, folks, he can help. So if that has been a struggle for you or is a struggle for someone that you know, ask him for help. Pray to him. Talk to him. Come and speak to us. His authority is supreme and he can help. Well, folks, it would be a mistake to think as we read this, that it's only the spirit that was unclean. The Bible teaches, as you kind of connect some dots through scripture, that the the unclean spirit that we see here, evil spirit, evil power, doesn't just float around, doesn't just create evil out of nothing. What we see in human history and through the history of the church is that evil spirits, they take up home in a person. And what they do is they amplify what is already there. They amplify something that already exists in that, in that person. So evil spirits would, would amplify fear in a person. They would amplify greed in a person. They would amplify lust in a person. They would see what is already there and just make it bigger to the point of terror and, and, an, and a, a weight that they cannot carry anymore. And what we see with this man in the temple in Capernaum is that is that he has an unclean spirit, but he wasn't made unclean by the spirit. He was already spiritually unclean. He came into the world, just like all of us, as a sinner, spiritually unclean, and the unclean spirit just magnifies his uncleanliness. Jesus delivers him from the uncleanliness of the spirit in the temple, but he still has a greater need, the uncleanliness of his sin. That's what he really needs to be delivered from. That's what all of us need to be delivered from. And Mark goes on to point us to how Jesus deals with that as well. He's delivered from the spirit. And now we see how ultimately Jesus comes to deliver us from the uncleanliness of sin 
And we see it through this last part of his authority, his life-giving authority. As Jesus goes about through the, the region of Galilee, he's, he's teaching and he's visiting different synagogues and we see that he picks up a following. In verse 29, we read that his fame spreads everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And that makes sense when we see what he's doing, when we see the miracles, when we see the healings, when we see the way that he engages with people, like it would have been a spectacle. I can just imagine this teacher comes to town and he's able to do what Jesus does here. He's able to deliver people from these uh, unclean spirits. He's able to heal people. It's, it's, it's understandable why he drew a crowd. And then we go on to verse 32. After healing Simon's mother-in-law, we read that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and all who were oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Like Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus. They were all coming to see him. They all wanted to engage in this incredible ministry. But then in verse 34, we read this. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus shuts the mouth of the demons, these demons who know that he is God. Remember their confession in the temple? They know who he is. They know that he is the saviour, Jesus. They know that that he is the the promised one. But Jesus doesn't permit them to go around telling other people who he is. Why did Jesus do that? You'd think he'd want more people to come to him. The need was there, like people needed to, to, to be healed. People needed to, to experience some of his miraculous power. You'd think that, that he would want to draw a crowd. Like if we do something great, we do that, don't we? Like we, we want everyone to know. Like if this was us, if we had this kind of ministry and the whole city was knocking at our door, like we'd want the Echo to come and take a, a, a kind of a photograph and put it on the front page. We'd be walking around, strutting our stuff down our plane, wouldn't we? Like we'd want people to know. This is a great thing that Jesus is doing. So why does he push it away? Why doesn't he want people to know who he is? Well, because these healings and this miraculous power, it is just a foretaste of the ultimate healing that he had come to bring. The healing of Simon's mother-in-law is just a morsel of the the great healing that he was going to bring ultimately on the cross. Down to verse 26 again. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. That phrase there, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, came out of him there is is literally expelled from him. So this, this unclean spirit is crying out with a loud voice and then the spirit is expelled from the man. Now, remember, Mark is, is moving fast through the gospel, isn't he? But he's, he's using every word deliberately and he's using every group of words and every description deliberately. And he's building a picture from the beginning of his gospel to the end of the gospel. And he wants us to know the real Jesus. He wants us to see why Jesus came. What's interesting is these phrases pop up again right at the end of Mark's gospel. In chapter 15, Jesus is being put to death on a cross. And when he's crucified, this is what we read. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, the same phrase, and he breathed his last. That is actually the same phrase. His breath was expelled from him. 
It's pretty much the same thing that's going on here. The evil spirit cries out with a loud voice and is expelled from the man. Jesus on the cross cries out with a loud voice and his breath was expelled from him. That's not accidental. Mark is deliberately joining the dots here. In Mark chapter 1, as Jesus begins his ministry, he knows that there is only one way to ultimately extinguish the power of evil. And that's ultimately for his life to be extinguished on the cross. Demonic oppression is dark and tormenting and painful. But the real problem for humanity is our spiritual sickness. The real problem is that our sin brings about eternal judgment from God. And that is what we deserve. That's our most serious sickness. And on the cross, Jesus takes that sickness for us. He takes the judgment of God for us. He stands in our place and he takes on our spiritual uncleanliness, our sin. And he suffers the judgment of God for us in our place. And in his death on the cross... The power of sin over us was undone. By his wounds, we were healed. And in his death on the cross, he freed his people from the slavery to that power. He has full authority over the power of sin. Just think about the recent conflicts in in Gaza and Ukraine. And just how they started, it started with, with just little, little pockets of conflict, little skirmishes, but then it, it led on to full-scale war. Well, that's what's happening in Mark chapter 1. We're seeing little skirmishes, just, just little uh, battles that are starting on, but they're all leading to a full and final conflict that we see reach its crescendo in Jesus' death on the cross, where he ultimately crushes the power of sin and crushes the enemies of God and comes over in full authority over the power of death over his people. The driving out of the unclean spirit in the man, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, They were just the skirmishes before the great battle where Jesus would die on the cross and give up his life and breathe his last. But the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus has full authority over the power of sin and the power of death. Look down at verse 30 and 31. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever And immediately they told him about her. And Jesus, he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. Jesus took her by the hand. And again, Mark is being deliberate with his words here. And Jesus lifted her up. That phrase there, lifted her up, it's one word in the original language, agiro. And a gyro literally means raised her or rose her up. He rose her up. He raised her. And that word is repeated again and again through Mark's gospel. In fact, every time Jesus heals someone in Mark's gospel, we see that word a again. So in chapter two, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see the healing of the paralytic. And we see that Jesus raises up the paralytic a In chapter 5, we see him healing Jairus' daughter and Jesus raises her up, Agira. 
In chapter 9, we see him heal the boy with the unclean spirit. And Agira, again, he raises the boy up. There's Bartimaeus and his blindness in chapter 10. And Jesus, again, Agira, raises him up. He rose these people up. And each time we see Jesus heal, we see him do the same thing. He raises them up. And we see this word again and again and again in Mark's gospel until finally we get to Mark chapter 16. And we see it one last time. In Mark chapter 16, after Jesus' death on the cross, Mary and Salome, they they go to the tomb expecting to find the body of Jesus. But instead they go and the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away and an angel has sat on the top of the stone. And they're astonished. And the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has a gyro. He has been raised up. He has risen. The deliverance of the man in the temple pointed to the death of Jesus for sin. And the healing of Simon's mother-in-law points to his resurrection. Where we see his life giving authority. The cross, Jesus' death, brings freedom from the power of sin. And Jesus' resurrection from the grave brings the promise of new life for all those who put their faith in him. And that's new life that we don't have to wait for. We will see that in its fullness one day, but we get to walk in that new life now. As the Holy Spirit abides in us, we get help from God in the midst of a broken world. We're able to walk free from sin. We get to live in that new life now and we will live in that new life for eternity with our Lord and Saviour in his eternal kingdom. A place of peace, a place of rest and a place of joy. Well, How should we respond to him? How should we respond to the authority of Jesus that we see in this passage? How should we respond to to an authority that is better than all the other authorities that we could see in our world? An authority that is supreme above all other authorities. How should we respond to an authority that is truly life-giving? I think we see it in Simon's mother-in-law. She is healed. She has this encounter with Jesus. And then what do we read in verse 31? The fever left her and she began to serve her. How do we respond to the authority of Jesus? We joyfully and willingly and lovingly serve. We follow him. We walk in obedience to him. Like she doesn't wait around and try and figure things out, does she? Like, I don't think this is just Mark like being snappy. I think literally like she just gets up and she starts serving. That's the immediate and rational response to, to the life-giving authority of Jesus in our lives. It's to serve him. Now, it's interesting, there's a bit of a contrast going on in the passage because the unclean spirit responds to Jesus with obedience as well, doesn't it? Jesus says, get out, be gone, be quiet, and it leaves the man. But it responds and reacts to Jesus out of fear. Our response to the authority of Jesus isn't a response of fear, it's a response of love. We serve him not because we're scared of him, We serve Jesus because we love him, because of what he has done for us. Listen to this from J.C. Ryle, um, the best bishop of Liverpool there has ever been. He said this when he's writing about this passage. There is no infidelity, there's no faithfulness among devils. 
They believe and they tremble, it says in James chapter 2. But let us take heed that our faith be a faith of the heart as well as of the head. Let us see that our knowledge has a sanctifying influence on our affections and our lives. Let us not only know Christ, but love him from a sense of actual benefit received from him. Let us not only believe that he is the son of God and the saviour of the world, but rejoice in him and cleave to him with purpose of heart. Let us not only be acquainted with him by the hearing of the ear, but by daily personal application to him for mercy and grace. The life of Christianity, says Luther, consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It is quite another to say he is my saviour and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. That's good, isn't it? We respond to the life giving authority of Jesus with loving service, with joyful service, with willing service, because of all of what he has done for us. When we hear the Lord call us to go and do, our heart response should be, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Folks, he is calling all of us this afternoon into areas of obedience, areas of service, ways to follow him, if you don't know what that is, then, then ask him, pray, listen to his voice in the word. Some of us this afternoon, service, obedience, following him might look like putting our faith in him. Faith in him for salvation for the first time. God's word tells us to believe in him, to put our faith in him. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So maybe that is your, your service to God this afternoon is to put your faith in him. To ask him to forgive you for your sins. Some of us need to follow the call into baptism. The word tells us believe and be baptised. Some of us need to put away sin in particular areas and put on holiness. That's our service this afternoon. Some of us maybe need to step in and serve in different areas and in the body, in this church. Whatever it is. When we see the loving authority of Jesus in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, when we see the freedom that he bought for us, the healing that he has given us, we cannot just carry on as normal. We get up and we serve because we love him. We serve as a joyful, willing and loving sacrifice. Let me end with this. Charles Wesley, 18th century Hymn writer got this so right when he wrote this famous hymn that a lot of us would know, and can it be? He says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and forth and followed thee. Let's pray. for a moment folks I think it's good for us just to take a moment in the quiet and to respond and to seek and ask the Lord where it is that, where it is that he would have us serve what are the specific ways that, that we should walk in obedience this week that we should get up like Simon's mother-in-law and follow him and serve him so maybe just in this moment of quiet we just ask him to reveal those things to us
Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a a king, a lord, a saviour that we can joyfully follow. We thank you that you've shown us in your life, in your death, through your resurrection, and even now as you're ascended, that that you are a you are a king, that you are you are a Lord who who will never fall from grace and who will never leave us. Thank you that you are one that we can bring our struggles to. And now, Jesus, we as we sing, as we take this meal, I pray that we would be open and willing and humble enough to bring our our chaos to you. Bring our struggles to you, knowing that you can bring order, knowing that you are the Prince of Peace. And so I pray that you would meet us where we are this afternoon. That we would bring our struggles, but also that we would respond rightly. That we would serve you. Just show us what, what that is. Show us where we need to walk in obedience. Show us where we need to follow you more intentionally this week. And just flood our heart with, with all the reasons that we would want to do that. As we sing now, just call to remembrance just the beauty of the gospel again. Help us to see the power of the, the redemption that you brought for us at the cross. Help us to see the love that you've shown us in your ministry, in your death, in your resurrection. And help us as your people to respond rightly with joyful, willing, loving sacrifice. Father, I pray for our church family. I pray that you protect them against the evil one. If there are those here this afternoon or those who are, are attached to our church family here who are struggling with, with demonic activity, then I pray that you would bring help. Thank you that you can. Thank you that you have authority over all things. That all power must submit to you. And so I pray that if there is struggle here, that again we would be humble to come to you and ask for that help that your son would meet us in that power and bring freedom where there is struggle and oppression. Jesus, now as we sing, as we praise you again, turn our hearts to remember who you are and all that you've done for us. And we pray these things in your name and for your glory.